This is the Inside is Capital podcast. Hello and welcome to the Inside is Capital podcast. My name is Pierre Daly. I'm Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. Today, it's our pleasure to talk with Dan Kelly. Dan Kelly is a portfolio manager at Fidelity Investments. He manages the Fidelity Founders Class Fund for Canadian investors. He also manages Fidelity Trend Fund and Fidelity Advisor Diversified Stock Fund for U.S. investors. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Pierre, for having me. Happy to be here. Dan, why don't we begin with your personal story? We all have a story on how we ended up in the investment industry. Some of us just love numbers. Some of us got here by accident. So when and how did you develop an interest in investments? You know, Pierre, um, it's interesting. I've always had a passion for businesses. Um, you know, ever since I think I um, I was 14 years old and had my first job um, stocking shelves at a supermarket, I always kind of wondered why certain products were priced the way they are, how things were marketed um, differently, what things were on the end caps um, at the supermarket, um, how the, the supermarket was run, um, and, and that started me um, kind of pursuing and, and reading about kind of investing, um, and I, I read a lot of the the classic investment books in, in, in high school. Um, unfortunately, I never really had any uh, money when I was in high school, um, so I had kind of a mock. I had I had a mock investing account um, and uh, took an investments class in high school, and and that really just kind of lit a fire underneath me in terms of kind of uh, pursuing why stocks are behaving the way they are relative to the fundamentals of a business. Um, uh, it's, it's kind of ironic uh, now that Peter Lynch is someone I, I talk to, and um, he's one of my mentors. I talk to him re- regularly, um, and here I was, a you know, 16-year-old kid in high school, kind of just starting to, to – to, um, look at the investment world and, and reading some of his books, like one up on Wall Street. And now I um, I do a quarterly call with him where he's kind of, you know, checking to see where I'm excited about um, certain areas of the market. And, and it's, it's a lot of fun. So uh, it's been a, a, a pretty interesting journey. So, Dan, um, tell us about your professional journey. How did you become a portfolio manager at one of the biggest investment firms in the world. So, um, so uh, it's, it's probably an atypical path, actually, for, uh, relative to most analysts here at Fidelity. Um, so I started my career on the sell side. Um, I was at Goldman right. Sachs um, and uh, Morgan Stanley for about four years out of college where – where I um, I was kind of a um, based on the institutional brokerage side, where I was kind of a, a stock um, you know analyst for the the institutional um, brokerage desk, and uh, Fidelity was one of our largest clients at, at both of those um, firms. So I got to talk to a lot of people here at Fidelity, um, you know, analysts and fund managers in terms of where I was. Um, Finding value within the the research platforms at Goldman Sachs and and um, and Morgan Stanley, and um, two of my former colleagues at Goldman Sachs had come over to Fidelity um, as analysts on the uh, real estate team, 
Um, and so, uh, so it was ironic. I had just taken a uh, job offer at, at, at Morgan Stanley. I always thought at some point in my career I would go to the buy side, but, um, but it was an opportunity for more responsibility at Morgan Stanley. And like a month or two into it, um, one of my clients here at Fidelity said, I, I need your, I know you've always wanted to be a, um, you know, an analyst on the buy side. I need your resume. And I'm like, oh man, I just accepted this, this offer. Um, things are going pretty well. Uh, but he knew what I wanted to do long term. I knew what I wanted to do long term. I actually had to take a, a pay cut, uh, a pretty big pay cut to come here because I, I wanted it that bad. Um, and it, and it's, it's worked out. It couldn't have been a better decision. Um, you know, I started as a real, real estate analyst, um, and, uh, talk about, uh, you know, jumping right in feet first into the flames. Um, I, uh, so I covered all different areas of, of real estate, uh, which have a lot of different operating, uh, areas. So like hotels and office companies and, you know, residential companies. And then I became our housing analyst. I was the firm's housing analyst. Uh, I got that assignment in May of 07, right as Lehman Brothers was right. about to uh, um, kind of, and Bear Stearns was melting down. And so, um, and, and obviously housing was at the epicenter of uh, the credit crisis. So um, what was a fantastic about that experience, um, you know, being the housing analyst from, from 07 through 2011 um, was I, I actually had to become um, a fixed income analyst as well, excuse me, where I had to basically look at every area of the capital structure. Obviously, a lot of these businesses were like housing and real estate were very capital intensive and access to the capital markets was closed. And so you had to kind of uh, look at their ability to fund their business um, for, for a long period of time. And, and I think that that will forever um, be a learning experience that hopefully will help me um, over, you know, my, the rest of my investment career because it was a, um, fascinating time. And, and the beauty of it was too, we were able to make a lot of money as a firm for our shareholders. When everyone was running to the exits and, you know, late 08, we were, uh, finding a lot of value in housing. And I think that afforded me, um, you know, uh, the opportunity to, to do, um, more exciting things within the organization, um, uh, given, given we were able to do relatively well during that period of time. I can imagine your your uh, your fundamental research background and and then subsequently the uh credit research background and that you developed must have been invaluable. Oh, so important. I mean, that's that I, I mean, uh, that's it. One of the things where uh originally I was thinking I you know, maybe I'll do a, a stint in high yield or something and 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 that three or four year period um, I basically was high yield analyst, fixed income analyst, equity analyst, um, and it was great because I also got to leverage the power of Fidelity's platform where we have such uh, reputable people in our fixed income organization and our high yield department. And, and again, you get kind of mentored by these um, uh, tremendous investors, and so it's, it just really helps you, um, you know, develop as an investor and just get up the learning curve even faster, which is great. So, Dan, you've been in the industry looking at markets for roughly 20 years. What lessons have you learned? Uh, wow. Uh, I, I'm unfortunately, probably two. We, we'd be here for five, you know, for, for days <laughs> if, if you want me to uh, list them all. Um, let's see. A, a few of the, the powerful lessons is um, I think I think the, the, the kind of crux of my approach to investing is I think the market often underestimates the rate 
or the sustainability of a company's growth rate. So, um, you know, I, I tend to actually be kind of lumped into this growth at a, at a reasonable price um, type of investor. Um, and and I, I, I think their growth fund managers tend to focus on getting the fastest growth for the cheapest, you know, cheapest price or, or, yeah, for a reasonable price. And value investors care about, like, you know, how mispriced the asset is and they worry about when it'll be normalized over time. Um, I actually think, um, the, the market tends to, to, to often under, misprice the, the, just the, 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 the growth trajectory of a company. And, um, if you look at a lot of these fast growing companies, there's often a big fade in the growth rate kind of priced into the market in terms of consensus expectations. And, and, um, I think the market, you know, consensus gets kind of lazy. They, they kind of say, okay, this is company's growing fast and it's probably not going to sustain that rate. And, you know, we'll have it, if it's growing 40%, we'll have it, you know, grow 20% next year and normalize to 10 and, uh, and until it becomes a mature company and then, you know, it's much lower. And, and right. you know, that's where fundamental research is so important and leveraging the breadth and depth of a, a firm like Fidelity and, and, and just doing the work. Um, and, and so I, I've always kind of, um, you know, I think during the credit crisis as a great example, it's just a lot of times the market just hasn't done the work. And that's what's so exciting and that you can find mispricings in any kind of market environment. Uh, I've actually been kind of excited by the recent volatility because of the dispersion of returns. <laughs> yeah, it's been increasing, which is great for stock picking. And I'm, I'm finding some tremendous um, or, or some exciting opportunities. So um, anyway, so I, in terms of lessons learned, I actually keep a list. Um, so I could get very granular for you. I'm, um, I'm opening a Word document if you really want to go into it. But um, that's, that's uh, I'm always trying to get better. And unfortunately, I'm making, you know, I think every investor makes mistakes um, um, every uh, every day. And you're just, you're, you're playing for hopefully a, a solid batting average. But um, at the end of the day, I think the one lesson learned I'll, I'll, um, I'll, I'll really reiterate to you right now is don't invest with, um, um, sleazy management teams because if you don't trust um, the people you're investing alongside of um, to to have the interests of your shareholders in, in delivering on on um, you know uh, the fundamental performance of the company and if they're more focused on themselves or if they're they're you know they're not ethical or um, or they're just cutting corners. Uh, it's a recipe for disaster and losing a lot of money, which I never enjoy doing. So I think underwriting the people you're investing with, which is actually probably not to lead into other questions, but that's why I'm actually so excited about the, the founders class, because you really are focused on the people that are leading the organization, that founded the company, that have the long-term vision. Can they execute on the vision? Are they the type of people you want to invest alongside of? I have to say, you know, it's the first time, Dan, that I think I've ever heard a fund manager, portfolio manager, put it quite that way. And uh, <laughs> I have to say I have a great deal of respect for that idea. I think I think it's an underestimated subject in terms of valuing companies or looking at businesses from from the bottom up. Just make sure you're you're investing with people that are um, that are above board. Will Dan Hoff and Mark Schmiel are growth investors. Joel Tillinghast and Dan DuPont are value investors. How would you describe your investment style? It's funny. In a nutshell, I would say I'm, I'm, I'm 
in between with a slight tilt towards Will and Mark. <laughs> um, so, um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm on the growthier side, so I'm definitely closer to Will and Mark. Um, unlike most growth fund managers, I may have mentioned this earlier, um, I am less focused on the absolute rate of growth. Um, I'm more focused on kind of the price per pound and, and, and how mispriced is the security over like a multi-year view of a company's growth rate. Um, so I tend to, my guess is um, my funds would screen um, a little bit cheaper than Will and Mark's and not as growthy, but they're still much growthier than Joel and Dan's. Sometimes, like, sometimes the best investment opportunities are when the market thinks that a company is going to have negative growth for a couple of years and you think it's going to be flat to positive with a chance of being really positive. I mean, those stocks are usually multi-baggers. Um, and so, you know, I think Will and Mark might wait to catch, you know, kind of the inflection and, and maybe uh, particularly Will would would wait till it's, you know, like things are, the earnings revisions are really taking hold. Um, I might be a little earlier because the, the long-term risk reward is so powerful. Um, and I, I think of housing as a great example, um, you know, during the credit crisis where um, the earnings revisions weren't really kind of taking, um, uh, you know, um, they're starting to hit yet, but they weren't, they're the negative earnings revisions were stopping. The companies had written down all their land books, so they were generating, um, um, you know, reasonable returns, and uh, they had liquidated a lot of their inventory, so their balance sheets were in better shape so they could survive. And so then it was just a recipe, like, if all the kindling was there, and you just needed a match to be lit on demand, and um, you know that happened as the economy recovered in the ensuing years. So, um, so yeah, I think um, so. So I think you can find you can find terrific investment opportunities that aren't necessarily fast growing. I do have a bias towards companies where I think the market is underappreciating the sustainability of growth. So I think this fund is a great example of that where, you know, I think these companies can compound. They're usually disrupting some area of the marketplace. They have some innovative new idea, a better way to, you know, provide a product to customers or a service to customers. And so they can often garner a lot of market share and and um, mind share with, with consumers uh, that can usually lead to, to higher growth for longer. And so if you have a three-year-plus time horizon, you look at some of these stocks, and they're, they're ridiculously cheap um, relative to the potential. So uh, that's kind of the heart of, of, of what I do. There are always aspects that are that are below the surface that aren't necessarily – they're not visible, but if you know where to look. I was going to say, just to reiterate that point, I think Peter Lynch, um, you know, he, he's kind of viewed as a um, you know famous growth investor, but – um, but he always kind of viewed, um, you know, investing kind of like a, a poker game. And, and the question is, is the next card getting better or worse? And um, I think to put up the returns he did over such a long period of time, um, it wasn't all, um, you know, growth companies. It was, um, you know, it was occasionally seeing a cycle that was getting better and tightening and, you know, whether it be energy or whether it be, you know, something else where all of a sudden things were getting better and the stocks were on sale, you know? Absolutely. Let's now talk about your new fund, Fidelity Founders Class. Can you describe the fund in simple terms? So, sure. In in a nutshell, um, we back-tested years and years of data and the conclusion is that founder-led companies 
um, or our, our definition of founder-led companies, but in general, founder-led companies, and I can go through our definition, which I think enhances the, the data, um, but uh, founder-led companies have uh, significantly outperformed non-founder-led companies going back over the last few decades. And so if you can pick stocks and add fundamental uh, traditional fundamental analysis and leverage our um, breadth and depth of research here at Fidelity, um, you can, um, you know, add even more value uh, from picking stocks within this sandbox, which is uh, fruit um, is fruitful for outperformance. So our data shows that the, the founders, uh, founder-led companies have generated about 200 basis points of outperformance versus the uh, traditional, um, we, we're using the Russell 3000 in our analysis, but um, other analysis has used the S&P 500 and found about a, a similar amount of outperformance. Where did the idea for this fund come from? You know, it's uh, it's actually a great story. So uh, you you mentioned in, in uh, earlier um, Will Danoff and Joel Tillinghast. They're two of my mentors. I've worked with both of them uh, for many years. Um, and a few years ago, uh, we were all kind of talking about some of the the, the common traits of of outperformers over time that they've invested with and their multiple decades of investing. And and both of them um, highlighted that. Founder-led companies uh, tended to be highly correlated with long-term outperformance, and so it led a um, led to a discussion where um, we decided to delve into the issue uh, further to see if it, there's any empirical data that supports that. And so I worked very closely with um, our quantitative research team here at Fidelity. I actually have a quant analyst um, that works very closely with me on this fund, and um, we did lots of back tests. We took out the survivorship bias. We, 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 we turned over the data every which way from Sunday, and, and um, we found the same thing. We found this to be a, um, a, uh, a fruitful area to invest in, and so then, um, you know, fortunately being um, at a place like Fidelity, I think, um, you know, one thing that I'm looking for in founder-led companies is kind of this this founder's mindset that kind of differentiates the uh, the company. So they're bold, they're willing to take risks, they see calculated risks, they see a long-term vision that, um, you know, that could disrupt an area of the market or could solve a problem uh, for people. And I think um, it's it's kind of ironic that um, um, that this this idea was so embraced uh, here because I think we embody, Fidelity Investments embodies this mindset that I'm looking for. Obviously, we're we're uh, still a family-led um, company. The granddaughter of um, our original founder is the CEO, and we have thrived for, for many decades by kind of having this bold vision, thinking longer term, staying laser-focused on providing the best um, uh, products and, and methods for, for people to save for retirement. And so for that very reason, you know, Fidelity invested a few million dollars of our own money to, to really launch this product a few years ago and see if uh, the empirical data of us running this product could uh, could deliver um, superior returns. And so far, uh, the performance has been um, quite strong. Is the founders class a tech fund? You know, it's a good question. So, um, Pierre, these companies, so um, just by 
the definition of, of the founder typically being involved, unless it's an heir that keeps the key tenets of what I'm looking for in a founder, uh, which I can discuss if you're, you're interested, but um, it tends to lead to newer economy companies. And what do I mean by that? Obviously, older economy companies, if you think back to the Industrial Revolution and you think back to, um, you know, um, you know, financial regulation and where a lot of financial companies came about, um, unfortunately, a lot of those founders have long since passed. And, and unfortunately, a lot of those companies, if they're still around, um, you know, perhaps the culture is different. Um, you know, so maybe the long-term vision is morphed based on their scale and, and kind of what their priorities are. And, um, and so, um, so it tends to lead to newer economy, um, um, areas right. of the market, right. which I would layer, uh, which I would call tech and technology and healthcare as being kind of two very large sectors in that new economy uh, part of the market. So right now, the fund is about 40% technology. So I would, in a simple answer, I would say, no, it's not a tech fund. Um, now, 40% is, is large, um, but um, I, I actually think most of the innovation I'm seeing right now, a lot of the innovation or the most powerful innovation is really related to the fact we have a supercomputer in our pocket right now, um, and it's really changing and permeate, permeating people's lives. It's changing the way they they do a lot of different things. And so um, so basically, I'm following the innovation. Um, I'm going where the, the, the greatest mispricings are, and uh, I don't think this will be a tech fund. I'm seeing a lot of innovation outside of technology. I'm seeing really interesting things. And, um, you know, like I, I, I'll give you a crazy example. I own a water utility. I can't talk um, specific stocks, I don't think, but uh, that's doing a lot of uh, water purification and delivering water to, um, you know, um, areas of the world that are where water is scarce and, you know, earning right. um, pretty strong returns as a result. So you find innovation everywhere. Um, but I, I do think um, some we're in this kind of multi-decade period where since people have a supercomputer in their pocket, I would I would think that this this uh, fund will tend to be heavy tech for, for for quite a while. Tech has been making a lot of headlines these days, and we're seeing some volatility. Is this a challenge or an opportunity for you as an active manager? I think hands down it's been an opportunity. I, I, volatility is my friend. Um, I'm trying to embrace volatility for the better good of my shareholders. And, uh, again, dispersion of returns is a good thing because um, the market sometimes has a broad brush during periods of volatility that is really not paying attention to any of the underlying fundamentals of a company. In many cases, it's it's kind of derating everything. Um, and right. so uh, Facebook, as an example, is regulatory um, risk and, and, and people concerned about uh, privacy. And obviously, that's going to be pervasive in terms of other um, companies like Facebook. But uh, the beauty of that is not every model is like um, each other. And so you can find, um, you know, other models within technology that have been discounted um, for maybe the wrong reasons, and and um, and that that's a great opportunity again for longer-term shareholders that are, are looking to embrace powerful disruptive trends in the marketplace. Like this fund is really geared towards, um, then then we want that because uh, ultimately that's going to be um, um, enhancing to our, our long-term return profile. Dan, what are some of the sectors and regions that you're finding attractive in today's environment? Tell us about some of the tailwinds that you like. Okay. Um, so generally, um, Pierre, um, as I mentioned, I'm very excited about certain areas of um, 
of uh, technology. Um, I think as we as we discussed that you know, for example, cloud computing um, that's going to be a powerful um, you know secular trend for a, a while because it lowers compute costs to a lot of businesses. It, it, it uh, leverages the scale of some of these cloud infrastructure providers, and it also enables uh, tremendous uh, data. Uh, analysis and being able to, um, you know, uh, leverage all these uh, tremendous reams of uh, data that all these um, digital devices um, create uh, on a day-to-day basis and all these transactions. So I think that's a powerful tailwind, but I want to really emphasize um, to you that this is, I'm finding innovation across every area of the economy. I'm finding tremendous innovation in healthcare. Um, we're seeing um, new uh, innovative platforms to treat a lot of different diseases, like cell therapy is a very interesting um, area of the marketplace where you're, um, you know, some of the companies are leveraging off-the-shelf um, um, T-cells where you can manufacture them to, to, to then put them back into the body to um, to treat people that have autoimmune, autoimmune diseases and, um, and even treat uh, various cancers. So uh, that, that's exciting. Um, I mentioned uh, the education space is an area. Uh, where I think is ripe for disruption, um, and uh, I, I um, am looking, uh, and I, I own some exposure uh, there. Um, so I think, um, I think in general, uh, the smartphone is a tremendous tailwind. But um, I think uh, you're seeing just uh, just a lot of new uh, innovation across, uh, like I said, uh, other areas of the economy, including financials. I'm seeing um, some some interesting things, and uh, even in some of the um, you know what would be considered old economy sectors like industrials, um, there's some um, you know relatively newer companies that I think are doing some uh, very exciting and, and creative uh, things uh, in that marketplace. So um, so that would be kind of uh, just emphasizing that there's a lot of, uh, uh, although it's tech-heavy, there, there's uh, a lot of great founder-led companies in, in all sectors. Uh, but I mentioned Tailwinds. Um, um, yeah, I mean, uh, in terms of tailwinds, I think I talk about just technology as a powerful tailwind. I think um, it's, it's lowering costs to many people. Um, it's, it's, it's giving access to consumers that they've never really had before to all sorts of products and services. Um, so there's an emerging economy uh, associated with that. Um, I think diversity, like uh, geographically, is a tailwind. Um, so I, I know everyone thinks of technology in the U.S. I think um, I'm finding a lot of interesting founder-led companies um, outside of the U.S., um, so there are about 700 uh, founder-led companies in the U.S. There's about um, 1,800 um, outside the U.S. that meet my um, kind of founder-led or our founder-led definition. So uh, there's lots of um, innovation outside the U.S. And what's great about that is if you find um, founder-led companies that have some sort of um, special sauce in terms of a product or service or a way of doing business, and they're exposed to also economic tailwinds like, um, you know, rising middle class like in China or India, um, uh, it, can, it can be kind of a, a, a dual um, win-win or powerful trend where uh, not only is, is this a, a new product or a new way of uh, doing business, but it's also uh, the, the consumer's ability to, to, to consume that. Or, or the end customer's ability to consume that is going up as well. So, um, so yeah. So uh, that that would be another um, thing I would highlight. 
Man, it's really exciting to contemplate the the idea that technology itself is fostering even more innovation. And thank you so much for uh, this this conversation. It's been really great to talk to you, and, and uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Great. Well, Pierre, thank you for having uh, me, and I really look forward to keeping a dialogue going forward. This is a product I'm really excited about because I think it exposes uh, shareholders to to a lot of really exciting um, both technological trends and just, just innovation, like I mentioned. So, again, thank you for having me. Dan, we're going to be very excited to continue this conversation with you down the road. Perfect. 